We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know. And sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Joan Lanto. Don Palumbo. Hi. We're back. We're here we're in here. Rapid City. We're not back here in Rapid, but no, we're back here but on Midwest we're, Murder. We're back. It's and been a while. We're back. It's a hot period. minute. And then we're here in Rapid City. First time. Yes, first time. So I've heard it said, you always remember your first. So let's make it memorable, Rapid City. It's our first time here as Midwest Murder, and we're damn glad to be coming at you from Hay Camp Brewing Company. Really cool building here in downtown Rapid City. Pretty delicious beer. And we're grateful to everyone for joining us here tonight. We are. And yeah. we're Thanks for spending your evening with us. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing an evening with us. You guys braved a little brief storm that we brought with us and inflicted upon you from North Dakota. So big thanks for coming out for that. And a th- big thanks to everyone who has taken the time to rate and review Midwest Murder on iTunes and Spotify. That feedback, I think it really helps people want to listen to us or not either way. And I think most of the time it's pretty encouraging. We like to hear what you guys have to say. We're grateful for that. Don, I'm kind of curious. What are people saying about Midwest murder these days? You've taken it pretty easy on me with uh, with some of the reviews lately. Usually, usually he gives me the, the the negative ones where I have to insult. I have to read the one that's insulting me. This time it's not so bad. So I appreciate I know that. It's usual, and if I have to do that, it's it's, <laughs> okay. it's the All reviewers' right, maybe, fault. It, it may have happened one time. Critic. It may have happened one You're time. You're like killing the messenger here. I am. It's it's <laughs> it's what happens. Uh, MN from ND. I'm assuming Minnesota from North Dakota. Four stars. Four stars. Less interrupting of one another, but. I get it. But when you spend enough time together, it's just like, eh, whatever. Great research and storytelling. Amazed that I've never heard these stories having grown up in North Dakota. I get a little frustrated with the interruptions and interjections, especially some crude, vulgar language ones from Jonah. It's great. It's all your fault. Look, <laughs> what's funny about that to me is the, the only thing that's not authentic about Midwest murder is the lack of swearing from Don Palumbo and I, Okay. <laughs> Everything else you get from us, pretty authentic. I think I hold it back pretty I, well. I feel like I hold, it, fair, I, fair. I hold it back pretty yeah. hard. Um, there, there are times I say the F word. But oh, yeah. You're a pirate. Usually, You're a pirate. Well, I think in the car, I'm a pirate. Yeah, for but, sure. you know, on the show, I try not to be. Yeah. Same. Uh, anonymous lady. Anonymous uh, lady. An- anonymous lady. Something. Something yeah. like that. Five stars. On point. My husband is a police officer in a city in North Dakota. You have covered crimes his department has dealt with. You are on point. Usually he can't stand listening to a true crime podcast. He has heard some other podcasts about a local crime and gets upset by the inaccurate information and all the gossip and rumors. But you guys have been spot on. He has never asked me to turn it off, please. Win-win. Keep doing what you're doing. That's a really cool compliment. That one makes me... That one... 
We that, do, one, that one warms my heart. Yeah, we yeah. do pride ourselves yeah. on getting the details right. That that stuff is important. We don't speculate too much. So a big thanks to everyone who's taken the time out of their busy life to, to do that. And you can do so and, and rate us and have your review read here on the show if you and go to iTunes. And it's it motivates us and yeah. it motivates others to listen to us and it helps us kind of climb those rankings. Yeah, it's, so it's, not, really it's cool. not just about that. It, it does amazing things because, you know, they pay attention to the charts and, and the reviews and all that. And, and it does... It does great things. So, so it's more than just pumping our tires. We appreciate yeah. it. You can score Midwest Murder merch at www.2manyshirts.com slash Midwest hyphen murder. You can also buy us a hot dish. That's kind of like just offering us a little bit of financial support to help offset some of the things and just be a super fan at buymeacoffee.com slash Midwest murder. Big shout out to everybody who has bought us a coffee so far. And this show is brought to you in part by Midwest Memoirs. Have you ever wondered how the stories of the people you love most will live on after they're gone? Midwest Memoirs is here to help you capture the most precious memories of your loved ones as told in their voice. This is done with research of your family member and completed through a professionally guided interview in a comfortable studio setting using state-of-the-art recording equipment. The most important stories we'll ever hear are those of the people we love most. You can contact Midwest Memoirs today on Facebook or Instagram. Although our story this evening spans a fair chunk of years, it culminates in 1954. So what was happening back then? These are somewhat turbulent times of post-war adjustments for American society at large. There is fear of communists infiltrating executive leadership positions and living within our country. In 54, Swanson introduced TV dinners. Ugh, what a gross. game changer. No more sweating over a hot stove all day for all those barefoot and pregnant ladies of the 50s. You just throw a, throw a Swanson in the That's oven right. and kick your feet up and enjoy life while the hubby works and the kids are at school. That's right. You, you take care of that hot meal for your family. You just you take care of it. And, and then, you know, for, for those of us latchkey kids, we were like, can I have one of those? That's great. I'm looking forward to a brick of a Salisbury steak. Oh, the thought of it just makes one a vomit. Do you guys remember the fish sticks? Oh, I feel big like thanks, Swanson. My mother would, I, you know what, can I be an anti-sponsor? Because I feel like I would. Like my mother would throw down like, oh, I don't want to talk about it. It's In traumatic. 1954, the words under God are added to the United States Pledge of Allegiance. The Supreme Court rules on Brown versus Board of Education, stating that segregation in public schools is unconstitutional. NBC's The Tonight Show was first aired with Steve Allen as the host. And the most popular books of the year, Lord of the Flies oh, by William book. Golding. Love that book. And Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Rings and The Two Towers, both by, of course, J.R.R. Tolkien. Ellis Island in New York closes as a point of immigration. Now, for most of us living in the Midwest today, our Scandinavian or German ancestors migrated through Ellis Island between 1880 and 1930. An estimated 27 million people immigrated to the United States. 20 million came through Ellis Island. That's wild. Right? Like, And, and then the fact that it closed, you know, I mean... My parents were alive, you know, and they were born in 1954. So that's like just a generation away from, from us, right? So it, the fact that it's, it was, that's, that's crazy. Born in 1954, 
Denzel Washington, Condoleezza Rice, John Travolta, and Jackie Chan. That feels a little weird. I, I remember growing up and having I, like an extraordinarily large crush on John Travolta. And and so when you say that he's he's born in 1954, I'm like, huh, okay. Okay. So, okay. It, it really puts it into perspective. It does. I, I had him pegged for 60s. And now we feel and, old. And now I... And, in 1954, yeah. the Boeing 707, that's America's first jet airliner, that took its first maiden flight in the United States. And in 1954, the first mass vaccination of children against polio begins. The first organ transplants are done in Boston and Paris. And the first of all electronic color televisions go on sale from RCA. It's the CT-1000. Now, that TV in 1954 sold for $1,000 or approximately $11,000 today. That's like a Ford Focus. <laughs> Just $11,000. Wow. What a statement to be the person with one of those TVs on your block. That's like, that's a down, that's a... That's okay, a, so a small down payment on a yeah. small house. I mean, eleven thousand right. dollars, you know, for yeah. a color TV. For a color and now TV, you can get a fifty-five inch for like two fifty. So weird. Yeah, it's wild. Which is proof that truth is stranger than fiction. Well, but hey, one second. Is However, that, uh, that doesn't prevent curious, imaginative minds from reaching for realities that are not scientifically proven with any sort of consistency. The best explanation is the one that makes the fewest assumptions, the simplest answer. Do you believe in ghosts, Don Palumbo? Well, I believe in the, the phrase that I, or the, the sense I was trying to say about 20 minutes ago that you just, you were like, nope, I'm just going to talk over you. It doesn't even matter anymore. I, you, you, the fuck? Am it was I, my am lead I, in. Am I even a host here or what? It's my lead in. I had to go in. I wasn't done talking about something else. But anyway, yes, I believe in ghosts. Thank you for asking. Why? Can a location become haunted as a result of terrible atrocities that occurred there. Well, I'm, I'm no ghost hunter um, or expert in the supernatural, but I would There's say no yes. There's no right or wrong answer here, just what yes. you think. I feel like that's yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. I only ask and share these ponderings because I set off to find a story that suggested a murder with supernatural ties. And while I didn't necessarily find that, I discovered so many places that people believe are haunted. And the common thread between these locations, tragedy and murder. The oddity that in a moment when a life was taken, something undying was released. A story, a haunting, a myth, maybe a cautionary tale. Then I wondered, where's the opposite of the haunted places? I want the Holy Grail and the Fountain of Youth. I want the magical room that gives me a winning lottery ticket when I exit. I don't want the Haunted Cavern Tour. I want the Sacred Fortunes Tour. Bring me to all the places where the good shit has happened so that when I walk away, I'm imbued with good luck, not cursed by a spirit that attached itself to my soul because I took my kid on the Haunted Tour. That's not the interesting stuff, though. Like the interesting stuff is the, they, they want, they want the darkness. Of I course. Want, everybody wants the darkness. They Why do you think we're all in this room today? Like that's, there's, there's a morbid curiosity about the darkness that surrounds us. Indeed. And every haunted place 
has an origin story. This one begins on April 13, 1918, in Newcastle Township, Ohio, with the birth of Cletus Reese. His was a birth that did not happen without complication. Cletus's father, Robert, was in his 50s when Cletus was born. Robert Reese, a widow with four daughters, remarried Mary Jane McLean, a woman 15 years younger. Their efforts to have children were challenging, and poor Mary Jane suffered the loss of two stillborns, but eventually she gave Robert Reese his only son, if not the one he always wanted. Sadly, Mary Jane's health gradually deteriorated following the birth of Cletus, and in 1923, she died of complications from diabetes. This left her son and only child predominantly in the care of Ethel Reese, Cletus's half-sister. Ethel was 16 when Cletus was born, and due to Mary Jane's health complications, Ethel essentially became the mother figure to Cletus. All the other older sisters had already kind of moved on. Dad was doing work on the farm. Ethel was taking care of Cletus. This was undoubtedly traumatic, not only for young Cletus, but his father, Robert, a man now twice a widow who seemingly left the daily care of his only son, Cletus, to Ethel. They were a rural and rugged family, but not impoverished. Pretty common for the times. The Reese family regularly attended worship services at Mount Nebo Methodist Church in the village of Nelly, and everyone did farm chores and contributed to caring for the animals, but the oldest sisters pretty much all moved on with their adult lives by the time Cletus got older. Over the years, Cletus grew in strength and size, earning a reputation for physical labor that was unmatched. As a milk delivery guy, Cletus handled the metal milk containers with one hand. Now, if you've ever stepped foot in a Midwest antique shop, I promise you've seen one of these old metal milk cans. And if you haven't ever stepped foot in a good Midwest antique shop, what are you even doing with your life? Okay, the antique shop right here in Rapid City, I've seen them down there. These giant metal containers full of milk, these weighed between 80 to 100 pounds and Cletus Reese was able to carry one in each hand. It was said that Cletus could pull cattle horns without tying them down. He could grasp the animal around the neck with one huge arm, holding it firmly in place while sawing the horns. They said Cletus could carry a hog under each arm. So he was about my size then? Is that what we're saying? Yeah. Yeah. About Don Palumbo size. About 5'2". Yeah. I don't know, actually. Like, you remember the, like, the traveling circus of the early 1900s that stereotypically included a strong man who could bend bars and lift heavy things? That's not far off from Cletus. He was tall, broad-shouldered, with burly, long arms. Cletus grew tired of farm life over the years and... He more enjoyed simply wandering the countryside with his hunting dogs. If I had to saw, hold on to a, a bull and then you know cut off his horns all in one fell swoop and then carry hogs under two arms, I'd get pretty sick of the farm life too. Like I feel like I would get tired. <laughs> I would get tired. It's kind of shit that'll wear a guy down. <laughs> yeah. What you're saying. Well, I don't blame you. 
Now, most folks in the area considered Cletus strange, but nice and helpful. People said he was a shy guy who kept to himself, except for when he was visibly arguing and having spirited discussions with invisible friends. And this was in adulthood, correct? In adulthood, okay. yep. All right. Cletus was often seen wandering in the night, crossing roads and ridges while in full conversation with people who weren't there. His odd behaviors became more noticeable as time ticked on. And although people considered him a nice guy, Cletus's temper would boil over when he drank. And whether he knew it or not, Cletus's temper was a terrifying prospect to those around him. Cletus was often unintentionally intimidating. In 1940, when his number was called in the World War II draft, Cletus Reese was rejected without comment in spite of his considerable physical attributes. A few years later, in 1942, Robert Reese, his father, passed away. Following the death of his father, Cletus's mental instability spiraled further downward. This mental decline did not go unnoticed by his sisters, and the siblings pooled their money, and they paid off the 65-acre family, family farm in Newcastle Township, which is just off what is now U.S. Highway 36. The farm was put in Ethel Reese's name, and Cletus was assigned the duty of managing the farm. The family hoped to put Cletus Reese in a comfortable situation, but with each passing year, Cletus showed less interest in working the land and more fascination in acquiring old vehicles and selling them for parts, often leaving the abandoned remnants on the farmland. When the family purchased adjoining land, expanding their farm to 195 acres, Cletus showed even less commitment to working the property, and the volatility of his moods grew more fearsome. He was a big man. It was scary to see him in a mood. Cletus's behavior was eventually deemed unsafe by his sisters, and they felt it was dangerous for him to live alone on the farm. This drove them to committing Cletus to the Ohio State Hospital in Cambridge. This was in 1951. At that time, then, Cletus was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Now, let's unpack just for a second. What did it mean to be diagnosed as a schizophrenic in 1951 in a time when we haven't even really addressed mental health at all? Well, and that was when, you know, institutions were around. And if anybody showed any sort of mental illness, they were, you know, electric shock therapy, a lobotomy. They were, you know, hidden away, you know, because we, we didn't, drastic. We, yeah, we didn't, we didn't see them in, in public. Anybody that suffered from any sort of mental illness, whether it be depression, schizophrenia, anything. And it, schizophrenia was, um, it was actually called early dementia prior to this because they thought that it was, it was that part of the brain. It was originally thought of as, as magical or supernatural because it was, you know, talking to an imaginary friend or, you know, whatever that might be. And in the fifties, they, they actually used the double bind theory and they thought that schizophrenia was caused by bad parenting. Yeah. So specifically like when parents said one thing, but did another and said, you're doing such a great job. And then, you know, showed that 
you did a horrible job or something, you know, something to that effect. That's a really yeah, it was like if, example, if they would but, praise their child and then conversely treat them really poorly. Like spank them or whatever. There, yeah. There yeah, was a belief them. that could cause yeah. schizophrenia. Right. Right. And, and, and he undoubtedly sustained trauma with his sure. early, his mom dying, his dad dying, yeah. being taken care of by his sister. None of that was normal. And I think that very well, problematic that's, that's for actually, him to be a big dude, again, that people were, I think, afraid of. Sure. And that's actually what can lead to schizophrenia now. And the reason they called it early dementia was because it primarily happened in young adults, you know, so then it was, it was kind of weird. And, and we were at a time when, when it was, you know, after the war and it was, it, it, mental illness was dealt with that upper middle class assumption about how behavior was supposed to be. Yeah. And so if you didn't meet those benchmarks, then something was wrong with you. You were institutionalized. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You were putting, you were, you were put into an asylum right. almost haphazardly yep. forgotten about. Uh, we just didn't have a, an efficient method of caring for mm -hmm. these people who struggle to function in society on right. A, right. the level of expectation that society was trying yeah. to place on everybody. But so, I mean, it is such a shame to, to look back upon, upon that. I mean, how, you know, any, it could be postpartum depression and, you know, mothers were drugged for nope, zapper. You know, I mean, yeah, Z right, yeah. Zap her brain. Well, she clearly needs a lobotomy or something. I mean, something that's, that's easily treated now. I mean, schizophrenia is treated now with medication, right? So it's, right. it's very manageable mm -hmm. for, for many, very, right. very manageable. So once he was institutionalized, Cletus Reese found some stability and he befriended another patient by the name of Paul Tisch, a veteran of World War II. Now, given the nature of his diagnosed antisocial characteristics, the friendship was viewed as a major achievement for Cletus, and they were an interesting pair. Paul Tisch was lanky and pint-sized. Reese was wide and towering. The development of this new friendship, along with alleged behavioral consistency as a resident, led hospital doctors to feel it was safe to release Cletus Reese after less than a year, in spite of the protests from his older siblings. Doctors from Ohio State Hospital were persistent in their belief and suggested Reese be, be released on a strict trial release program with checkup evaluations every six months and with Ethel serving as an occasional supervisor. Ethel reluctantly agreed, feeling as though she had little other choice. Cletus returned to his isolated farm on the family property, a small home on the ridge overlooking a possum hollow. Several months after his return, the original family farmhouse burned down in a random accident. What do you make of that? Well, I'm, I'm guessing it wasn't an accident. Yeah, yeah. Who's to say? This coincidentally happened after Cletus comes home. Meanwhile, Reese's old buddy Paul Tisch decided it was time to leave the hospital. And on December 9th, 1952, suddenly walked off state hospital grounds wearing a leather jacket and two pairs of pants. His disappearance was immediately reported to authorities. But the search for Paul Tisch didn't go far. Paul Tisch's life prior to the hospital was only shattered remnants of instability and sorrow. His father died during the 1918 influenza epidemic, 
when Paul was just five years old. His mother followed her husband in death just a few years later, leaving Paul Tisch to spend most of his childhood bouncing around in foster homes. As an adult, and I'm sorry, in the in the 20s and oh, 30s, man. I can't imagine that was a great life. I no. mean, foster homes now are not always the best, and and so that's a tough go of it in that era to be orphaned, essentially mm-hmm. to, to be an orphan at that time. Mm-hmm. It's never good to be an orphan in the in the 1920s. Way bad. It didn't go well. And as an adult, Paul, he he did find love. He got that's, married. That's the benchmark. It's it's way bad. It's, it's way bad. Way bad. Way I, bad. Yeah. That was, that was, maybe that was, that was intellectually, intellectually lazy. That was intellectually really. lazy of you. Well done. I could probably elaborate uh-huh. much yeah. further on how bad it was, but. That's I, a, that's kind of an inside joke and I, I apologize. We'll fill you in. Uh, there was a review that Jonah made me read that, that I had to call myself intellectually like, lazy. Like forcibly made her read. And <laughs> it was your episode. It's my job to read those. And I was called intellectually lazy because I said, that's disgusting. Um, during an episode <laughs> that was particularly disgusting. It and, was gross. and so when he said that was way bad, it was very intellectually lazy of him. <laughs> I'm going to get away with it though. Unlike poor Don Palumbo. <laughs> I know you, you won't get called out, but I will. So as an adult, Paul found love, he got married and he was eventually called to serve in the Navy during world war II. Sadly, Paul was not the same man when he returned home from war. After that, his wife divorced him and Paul Tisch completely had a mental breakdown He was initially placed in a county home before eventually arriving at the state hospital in Cambridge, where he befriended Cletus Reese. Now, I can't testify as to the effort given in the search for Paul Tisch, but let's just say it went cold fast. And Paul Tisch was declared a missing person. I sort of got the impression that Nobody was really pressing law enforcement to find him. So, oh, a mental patient went missing. Let's look around. Oh, we turned up a few bushes. Hey, we didn't see him. He must be gone. Hey, we didn't see him. He's yeah. just, he's out there in the world. He's free. Let him wander. It was, I mean, it just, it was things, the 50s. things were handled so differently then. I, I mean, yeah, yeah. It, it, it was so mental informal, health, you know, specifically. It turns out a lot of people, particularly, young to middle-aged men went missing in central Ohio in the 1940s and early 50s. The Reese family farm was located in Coshocton County, not far from the Mohawk Dam, a major public works project designed for flood protection. It's a beautiful area and the landscape very familiar to locals, also very familiar to Cletus Reese. He lived on the ridge at the head of Possum Hollow, southwest of the dam between Newcastle and Ellie. On November 28, 1953, nearly one year after the disappearance of Paul Tisch, local farmhand Lester Mellick worked all day on a farm near the village of Danville, went for supper at the restaurant, and then mentioned meeting a friend for drinks before leaving. Later that night, locals saw Lester Mellick having a beer at the Danville bar with Cletus Reese. So I don't, don't want to, I mean, I don't want to jump to conclusions here, but I'm guessing he was leaving more than just random car parts around. We'll see. We'll see. I mean, 
Don with the big brains here. Uh, that's like right. You that's... really? Yeah. Yeah. You're, hey, you're picking up what I'm putting down, Don Palumbo. Nice job. But that Thanks. beer at the Danville bar, that was the last time anyone saw Lester Malik. The Knox County Sheriff's Department conducted extensive searches and questioned locals, but nothing turned up. Cletus Reese denied any knowledge or involvement in Melek's disappearance. And although they kind of were suspicious of him, they had nothing. Melek's case went cold. Have you seen him? Have you seen him? Yeah, he was with Cletus. Cletus, what happened? I don't know. Okay. Police work. It's the 1950s. At the start of 1954, <laughs> in the summer of 1954. Oh, I, I, I feel like, thanks for letting me, thanks yeah. for letting me jump in this time. I appreciate yeah, that. No, it I, was, you know, unlike the beginning, I had another thought. It was great. Uh, like in the, in the 1950s, I feel like police work and journalism worked so closely <laughs> together. So if there wasn't a journalist on the case, it was like, nah, that nothing happened there. It's fine. Nothing. Nobody cares. It's such a, it's such a weird time for police work because there's just not a lot of forensics yeah. and all you can do is ask people what they saw people. and yeah. hope that they're not bullshitting you right. or remembering wrong. Like 92% of witnesses happen to remember things wrong or incorrectly. And eh, and I can't, uh, who knows where Lester went? I can't speak for, for Lester, but you know, as far as, you know, a, a missing, a, a missing, um, and I'm going to use this term cause this is what they would say in the fifties, a, a mental patient who cares, right? Like it's, it was Nobody gave a shit. You right. Know? So when, it, when Paul Tiche went missing, it's like, right. yeah, it's like, it's not a big a deal. Right? It was, it was, it was somebody who was, you know, institutionalized. And, and so if he's not missing, he's no longer, or he, if he's missing, he's no longer a problem. Right. Right. So it was, yeah, it was just a different time, different time. So at the start of summer, 1954 on June 2nd, Cletus Reese decided he want, he wanted to take a brand new Hudson automobile for a spin. Now, the Hudson automobile is the classic 1950s car. If you picture a 1950s burger and shake shack full of those sweet, classic-looking cars that a lot of us don't know the name of, those cars were probably Hudson's. It's, it's like what Elvis drove when he wasn't driving a Cadillac. They only made them for a handful of years, like back then. In fact, the Hudson Hornet, driven by racer Marshall Teague, is said to be the vehicle that commercially put NASCAR on the map. So for, for those of you young bucks, if you remember right. the, the movie Cars, right? It was the voice of Paul Newman. He, is it, it was, really? He was a Hudson Hornet. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a great reference. I had no idea. Thanks Thank for you. bringing that. Yeah. Thanks You're for welcome. planting that in there. Yeah. yeah. Any more? Sure. All right, no, I just want to make sure. You. I, thank you for giving me that. I space. don't want to suffocate any more of your thoughts during thank you. this episode. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> he can he can feel me seething over here. Where I'm just like. Uh, I, now I don't even remember what I was going to bring up in the past. Great. So Cletus Reese calls the Hafner Truck and Equipment Company in Coshocton to request a test drive. So back then, it wasn't uncommon for dealerships to bring the vehicle to the customer, to their house. Oh, you want, you want to get in this thing? What do I got to do? Come to your house with it? Okay. And so they did. The potential lead was being handled by part-time car salesperson, Clyde Patton. Oh, that says it all. He's just part-time. That guy doesn't know what he's doing. Part-timer. Just a part-timer. Don't be so hard on him. This wasn't the first such demonstration on the Reese Reese family farm. So Ethel didn't think much of it when Clyde Patton showed up in the new Hudson. Throughout most of her life, Ethel Reese worked in Millersburg as a teacher. So she didn't really visit the farm too often as... 
Cletus's supervisor, but she happened to be there this time around. Like Ethel Reese, Clyde Patton was also a school teacher, and he taught full-time in the village of Fresno. So Clyde worked car sales part-time to support his wife and four children. They were expecting a fifth child in just a few months. Ethel could relate. She worked part-time in the evenings as a server in Millersburg. So the only thing I'm taking from this paragraph is that we've been we've been paying teachers shit since the 50s for like 70 80 cool. years now yeah that's cool yeah yeah we're so hard still but, need yeah. a second job still today like they did in the 50s yeah. yeah i'm glad to see nothing's changed big problem that's good huge problem we're not addressing it so clyde Patton, that man four children with the fifth coming this guy needed every sale he could get and that determination wasn't diminished when ethel told him there was no way cleat could afford a new car He hadn't even paid off his current vehicle. Nevertheless, Ethel agreed to allow the test drive, noting upon their return that Cletus was, quote, starry-eyed and tense. She watched as the two men pulled the car up toward the barn and turned it around. A few minutes later, Cletus entered the home, the farmhouse, acting very strange. You might be wondering... How much more strange can Cletus Reese get? He was stiff and rigid, unresponsive, zombie-like, and zoning out, staring off into space after coming back in from parking the Hudson and departing from Clyde. So Ethel stayed on the farm with Cletus that night. When she left in the morning for Millersburg, Ethel noticed the new Hudson was still parked in the front yard. She didn't approve of Clyde Patton leaving the vehicle for Cletus to audition. So when Ethel got home, she called the dealership and said, hey, you gotta go pick that car up. My, Cletus can't buy this. Go pick that up. Unbeknownst to Ethel Reese, Clyde Patton never returned home the previous night. And when Clyde didn't show up for supper, Rosalie Patton, his wife, felt ill. She knew something wasn't right. She called Coshocton County Sheriff Gilbert Kempf that same evening to report Clyde's absence. But the sheriff opted against investigating the matter further until after 24 hours had passed. Rosalie Patton, the pregnant mother of four, could do nothing but wait. I'm sorry that I said something about him being part-time. I feel bad. No, I didn't mean that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're going to walk that one back. Walking that back. That's good of you to walk that back. I I, I reacted too soon. Yeah. Jumping the gun. At this point, in such a small community, it was no secret that Cletus Reese spent time at the state hospital, and he was widely regarded as an odd fellow with mental problems. Combine that with his mammoth size and renowned strength, one can't help but wonder if everyone around Cletus was constantly afraid of him. So it was Wednesday, June 2nd, when Clyde Patton didn't come home and and Coshocton County Sheriff Gilbert Kempf decided to give it the rest of the day Thursday, the next day. So he's like, ah, it's Wednesday night, we'll give him that. Thursday, June 3rd, Sheriff's like, yeah, we're going to give him the day. We're going to see if Clyde shows up. Sheriff figured it wasn't strange 
or unheard of for young, stressed out husbands with a whole pile of kids to run off for a night or two. And I'm sure it was his wife's fault too, right? Like, you know, (laughs) if you weren't just such a crazy pregnant bitch, you know, he would be here, (laughs) right? I'm... Oh man. So the, the sheriff was definitely, uh, he was definitely hoping for the best, but when Clyde Patton didn't return home that day, old sheriff, he knew the worst was coming. That's nice of him. I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad he was prepared for it then. Yeah. I figured it out. Yeah. So on the morning of Friday, June 4th, Sheriff Kempf and a team of deputies paid the Reese farm a visit. Cletus greeted them and gave him permission to search the farmhouse while Sheriff Kempf questioned him. Cletus was inconsistent and evasive during questioning, growing more nervous with each passing minute. Now, this struck me as really odd, but get this. Rosalie Patton, Clyde's wife, was with the team of law enforcement officers and joined them inside during the search of Reese's home. I feel like that, so that, that, doesn't, a, that doesn't surprise me. It was the 50s. I know, I mean, but it's a, come on. It was, it was like, oh, you've had too much to drink at the bar. Just get yourself home. Can you just get your, I mean, yeah. like it was just such a different time with, with crime and, and. So they're bringing everything. her along to the investigation. Right. Help hey, us, help us search the house. This won't be traumatic at all. And no. especially since you're pregnant, like it'll be fine. <laughs> it's going to be fine. Just come along with us. See if you notice anything like that's. And yeah. she did. Rosalie identified a number of Clyde's possessions in the bedroom of Cletus Reese, a so, pocket secretary. Please come into the home. Yeah. Look, like, no, a, yeah. Take she, a look she, around. She wasn't See. hanging out outside in the patrol car. They're like, hey, Rosalie, we want you to check out the house too. So she I'm finds, sorry, I didn't, sorry. I didn't believe you a day early, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> so she's, she finds all this stuff in Cletus's bedroom, her husband's pocket secretary, a watch, a, a pen and pencil set and a pocket knife. The watch was laying atop Cletus's Bible as word spread throughout town that authorities were looking for a body on the Reese farm. Over a hundred people turned out to assist in searching and journalists covering the story, put down their pens to help in the search. Curiosity seekers got to become investigators for a day. In spite of the effort and all the added help, nothing was found before nightfall on the first day, aside from the items found in Cletus's room. On the second day, even more volunteers showed up. The search expanded, and the first discovery was made. A trail of blood led searchers through a field of hundreds, hundreds of yards behind the farmhouse, it appeared something was dragged through the dirt and grass along the route. The blood trail ended at a plowed furrow, and in that rut lay the mostly uncovered body of Clyde Patton. A blood-stained, hair-matted oak club lay near his body. It appeared Clyde Patton was smashed several times with the club and then dragged across the farm as he bled profusely from the face and skull. Cletus Reese deposited Patton in the furrow and then finished his bloody work by crushing the man's head into a pulpy mass. Law enforcement marched Cletus Reese into the field, forcing him to confront the heinous crime, but Reese was emotionless. If their hope was to elicit a confession, it didn't work. When questioned, 
Cletus started babbling and mumbling. The only clear thing investigators understood was, quote, this has been going on for a long time. Reese offered nothing else. He simply hung his head in shame, refusing to make eye contact. He was immediately placed under arrest for murder. You have to wonder if if we had started treating mental health the way that it should have been from the get-go, if we didn't look at it from a I'm better than you kind of perspective, you know, or, or that upper middle class perspective, right? Sure. You have to wonder how you, many, you might how not have many, a killer here. Right. Yep. yep. So this quickly drew the attention of Knox County Sheriff, Paul Cochran. Cochran long believed Reese was responsible for the disappearance of 58 year old Lester Mellick. Sheriff Cochran was welcomed into the interrogation And he came at Cletus Reese with aggression until Reese suddenly blurted out that he shot Melek in the head while they were in a car. Now that must have been a release for Cletus to let out that, to let that out because he instantly broke down into a sobbing, snotty, drooling mess. Following that confession, investigators could not restore Cletus Reese to a state of coherence. It was the end of questioning for that day. When I, when I was a correctional officer, we had the access to these, um, the, these glasses, they were like a, like 3d glasses. And I mean, it was like 2007. So it was a video, not an app, but today it would be an app likely. And I'm sure they have one, but you, you put these glasses on and in the app or in the, in the video, you could experience what somebody who suffers from schizophrenia experiences. Oh. Right. And so who, who knows what had happened in, in Cletus's mind, Yeah, you know, and, and because it, his schizophrenia was not treated and people didn't know any better, I guess, if you want to say that, you know, I mean, they, they didn't have the proper research and, and I mean, testing, he, right. He, yeah. He clearly spiraled into some delusional sure. yeah. and, and, planes of thought for sure. Yeah. And I think, I think delusional is in, in delusions and, 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 um, what's the word I'm looking for? Paranoia, delusions, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, uh, that's hallucinations. Not, hallucinations. That was a word. Yeah. Thanks. That was apparently really hard. But I, we, if we don't suffer from that, we, we think it's just ridiculous. Right. But sure. in, in someone that, that suffers from that, those delusions and, and hallucinations are very, very real. Right. And, and so I just remember being in these glasses and, and the, one of the scenarios was a, a guy is delivering pizza and the, the pizza delivery man is violent. Like mm. that's what you're experiencing. You that's know, freaky. So it, and the guy's just delivering it. It's not actually he, right. Sure. He's just there delivering a pizza. So I, I think it's, it's, it's so easy to say that he, he, he did so much, um, murder and, and wrong here. And I, you know, I get it, but we're not experiencing that. Right. So it, it's a, it's, it's hard to imagine exactly what he was thinking. Sure. Well, and so the, the following day when sheriffs came back for another round of questioning, Cletus Reese denied everything he told them the previous day. He denied ever telling sheriffs anything. He denied knowing Lester Mellick or any of it, and he refused to speak about any of it further. 
Now, these old-time small-town sheriffs, they were getting pissed. Their good cop, bad cop routine wasn't working on what they thought was the countryside simpleton. Because we're dealing with two, two separate counties here, right? right. Yep. So two, yeah. yep. And they're camp ha- no, so, so you got Sheriff Camp handling Cletus really gently and calling him Cleet and speaking softly and directly. He's known him most of his life. Then you got Cochran. Cochran is all anger and hostility. In his eyes, this giant of a man was a stone-cold killer. Reese continued to stonewall the investigators. Now, Harry Mellick, Lester's oldest son, took an obvious interest in the Reese farm following the discovery of Clyde Patton's body. Harry knew his father hung out with Reese from time to time and agreed with Sheriff Cochran that Reese did something. Young Harry Mellick tirelessly searched the 165-acre property. Several days into his search, the efforts paid off, and Harry's keen eye identified a location up on a ridge where the grass looked slightly discolored from its surrounding areas. So it's like, a, it's like some Hawkeye stuff there. It's so, like 164 acres. And it's like, right. yes, that grass it's like, looks no, different. Up there on the ridge, the grass looks different. Wow. Go check it out. That's, that's really what happened. So wow. de- deputies were sent to dig the location out. Sure enough, they found a body. Only it wasn't Lester Mellick they found. Lester was an average-sized 58-year-old man. This was the body of a younger, smaller man wearing a badly deteriorated leather jacket. And two pairs of pants. And two pairs of pants. But what he looked like was impossible to make out. It was an ending so violent. The skull was beaten and crushed nearly in two. All that remained was a horrific decomposing mess of split bone and rotting flesh. Investigators were stumped as to who this body could be. Pathologists determined this body was buried at least a year prior, preceding Lester Mellick's disappearance by several months. So a renewed, vigorous effort with 600 volunteers fanning out across the farm finally turned up the body of poor Lester Mellick the following day. And he was actually found right across the road, not very far from the farmhouse. Contrary to the confession of Cletus Reese, Lester Mellick had not been shot. The old farmhand was bludgeoned to death. His face was dented, broken, and smashed beyond recognition. After the third body was found, Sheriff Kempf interrogated Cletus Reese again. This time, he had one direct question. How many more bodies will we find if we keep looking? Quote, you won't find any more. Three is all. Further searches were immediately called off. Quote, it's over as far as I'm concerned, said Sheriff Kempf. Sheriff Kempf, again, I'm going to say it was the 50s, but wow, he just, he was like, nope, that's it. Guys, move, we're nope. moving on. Nope. We found the... Th- we're going we're gonna to wait 24 hours? We already Shit. found one we found extra body. body. We Never were mind. looking for like, two. Yeah. This guy was very... 
I bet he was fun at parties. (laughs) (laughs) So words spread like wildfire through the region and some savvy headline grabbing journalist dubbed the Reese farmland murder Ridge. I knew it was going to, I knew there was going to be a journalist. I knew it. I knew it it was going to happen. Oh, murder Ridge. And it's a name that would stick with the property forever. In the days to follow, thousands of searchers, seekers, and people full of morbid curiosity roamed the property. If these murders had been going on for a long time, as Cletus said, one might think there'd be more bodies. However, no more victims were ever found. Now, that didn't prevent macabre rumors from circulating in the region. After all, Dozens of men had gone missing throughout central Ohio over the years, and the Reese property was littered with broken down vehicles. This led to gruesome stories of Cletus kidnapping stranded motorists and cannibalizing their bodies, which naturally, that's why no additional bodies were found. He ate them all. I think that was the uh, rumor. Like, right, that was that's, the rumor. that's not what actually happened. That was the rumor, yeah. Well, that's what I mean. I can just hear some small-town gossiper with big hair. Well, you know they couldn't find no more bodies because Cletus was eating them. Hey, the higher the hair, the closer to God, okay? <laughs> like, that's, that's, that's why. And so that oh, woman, man. she has got it all. I got to like, level my hair up, it sounds yeah. like. <laughs> so fortunately... The investigators chose to focus on the crimes they knew actually happened, as well as identifying the mystery body rather than chase after the wild rumor stories. There was a mystery body? Yeah, they they found the body with the... We know who it is, the body with the leather jacket and the two pairs of pants. I imagine most people know who that is by now, but they don't know. Cletus hasn't told them. Nobody give a shit about that guy when he went missing. And so here he is dead, face smashed in. Nobody knows. I thought... I maybe got distracted yeah. during the, the karaoke. No, yeah, you and I was miss like, it, I missed yeah. a body? Shit. Like, you I didn't have no ID I'm, on him, nothing. Right. So, well, in, typically when you, you know, just walk off of a, of a state hospital property, right. you don't typically take your ID with you. So, that I makes really sense. don't know what's typical when you walk off a state hospital property. So, I can't say. Well, I'd say that. That, that. would be pretty typical. Yeah. Well, two pairs of pants doesn't seem very typical, but there we are. Here, here he was. It is Ohio, and you just don't know. You don't know. I mean, maybe it's cold. Yeah. In yet another somewhat strange decision in this case, the Coshocton County Sheriff granted reporters full access to murder suspect Cletus Reese, allowing them entry to the jail to pepper Reese with questions and take photos. The hope of law enforcement was that reporters would rattle Cletus Reese and shake additional information out of him. But the giant man, the, the, the giant man just paced nervously and chain smoked. Quote, Cleet, these here fellows want to get this thing in the paper, said Sheriff Kemp. Maybe this fellow we found here yesterday has a family. They must be worried about him. And things couldn't be much worse. Why did he all of why a sudden become from why don't Alabama? You, why don't you just tell? Why don't you just tell us what you know about it? <laughs> Ohio is in the South now. I know. I know. I can't. I can't help it. How? Where did I get there? It's, I could have gone Irish, but that would have been wrong too. So 
Reese stared blankly, just shaking his head from side to side, and he was no help at all. But just like imagine the situation, this small, small rural jail packed with reporters, their giant flashing bulbous cameras, all the sheriffs in the county, everybody's crammed in there around port with his cletus. It's just, it's a situation. You know, inmates didn't have rights at that time. None. So it's like these here, just chain smoke your cigarettes. You don't even have to buy off commissary. You can probably just bum one from the guard. It's great. Finally, sheriff, the sheriff asked Cletus, if he would share the story with his sister, Ethel, that was the first thing to elicit a major response from Cletus Reese since he had been in jail. Quote, I'd really like to talk to her. He said, looking up with a big smile. Because why would you, you know, invoke emotion first? You know, forget emotion. Let's just go with uncomfort first or discomfort, you know, and it'll be fine. Reporters continued pressing Reese with questions. Quote, wouldn't you rather just tell us what you know about the other body and get it off your conscience? Silence. Well, don't you have any religious ties? I don't have no religion, Cletus replied. So that's the scene. Cameras, deputies, reporters. Now, I know this guy likely killed three people, but something about the whole thing just doesn't feel right. Then... One of the deputies chimed in and said Cletus told him he wished, quote, I wish this thing would get over with so I can get back to my farm. In the midst of all of this, no, like in all of this, that's the thing Cletus said, I wish this would just get over with so I could get back to my farm. This type of compartmentalized, disassociative reaction is actually not uncommon in serial killers. Many serial killers view the murders as a small piece of their life from which they can simply move forward from. Well, I think disassociation happens a lot just in mental health period. Sure. You know, so it's just kind of a natural reaction. Cletus Reese was formally charged with the murder of Clyde Patton on Saturday, June 12th at the Coshocton County Courthouse. He refused to enter a plea and the court deferred entering one for him until a later date. On Monday, Sheriff Kempf and several other investigators initiated a round-the-clock interrogation with alternating interviewers. They bombarded Cletus Reese nonstop all day. Reese paced back and forth, cursing and sobbing until he finally broke down and confessed. Reese identified the unknown body as his old buddy from Cambridge State Hospital, World War II Navy veteran Paul Tiche. Evidently, Paul Tiche showed up at the farm approximately 16 days after fleeing the asylum. According to Reese, he killed Paul Tiche on Christmas Eve of 1952 and hastily buried the body up the ridge in a shallow grave. But when the sheriff pushed for details, things with Reese's story got weird. Quote, no, I didn't know him, Cletus said. He was a soldier, and he came to my house. We had a difference over theology. I shot him with a twenty-two caliber Smith & Wesson pistol I bought at Roscoe. Reese claimed to have shot Tiche in the living room and then buried him, stashing the gun in a kitchen drawer. There was no evidence to support this claim. Tiche's body had no bullet wounds, 
and investigators found no such weapon during their search of Reese's property. Then, Reese claimed he never touched Tish or the other men at all until moving their bodies. Reese said he shot all three of them and never beat their heads in. Reese was willing to admit being guilty, but it seemed like he wanted to avoid admitting having physical contact with his victims. Throughout the confession, his delusions intensified in their grandeur. At one point, he said soldiers were overrunning his farm and killing innocent people, that his murders were committed in self-defense. In other moments, Reese shouted to investigators that he was working under strict orders that came directly from First Lady Bess Truman, the wife of President Harry S. Truman. What Reese didn't talk about, nor did investigators press him on, was that all of his known victims were male, and Cletus Reese was never known to have had a relationship with a woman. No matter how hard the sheriff pressed Cletus, they never got a motive for the killings. Reese tried to make it sound like he didn't know Paul Tisch at all, but reports from the Cambridge State Hospital proved the contrary to his claim. Speaking of the state hospital, in the wake of these murders, people in the community questioned why Cletus was ever released from the asylum in the first place. How could Cambridge State Hospital agree to release a schizophrenic mental patient? This outrage intensified when a report from the asylum hit the press. According to the files, Reese was a, had a very sudden temper and suffered from delusional tendencies while he was a patient. Reese also believed himself to be a policeman or an FBI agent. The superintendent of the Cambridge State Hospital, Dr. Arthur Hopgood, deflected the suggestion Reese shouldn't have been released. Dr. Hopgood said Reese's social isolation on the farm prevented his recovery, claiming if Reese had moved into town, gotten a job, and regularly interacted with people, Reese's recovery would have been stable. Instead, being alone on the farm, left to wander the, con- the countryside with his dogs and imaginary friends, drove Cletus Reese into delusional murder. I'm Dr. Hopgood. I'm sure he was really good in his profession. Wow. Sounds like an A-plus a doctor, huh? If he'd have just been around people, he'd have been fine. That's, that's it. That's, that's all it. you need. That's all you just needed. Be a working member of society and get around people. Uh, uh, that's yep. treatment. I God, tell you. What a dick. <laughs> The mob was eager to blame someone and many pointed fingers at Ethel Reese, but she denied instigating her brother's move home. She said she was against it the whole time. Quote, on the recommendation of the hospital, Ethel said in a newspaper interview, I was notified that Cletus seemed to be in condition to come home for a trial visit, adding that never once did she believe Cletus was ready to come home. Quote, myself, I never thought that Cletus was in condition to warrant his unconditional release. Repeatedly, I refused requests from the hospital that I signed papers vouching for his permanent recovery and discharge. 
Ethel said that Cletus's troubling descent into madness started just five years prior. Quote, he had fits of anger and at times was incoherent. But when he was himself, he was honest, generous, and harmless. When he had these spells, he was tense and stared into space. At times, he was verbally cross and unreasonable to me. Following his court appearance, Cletus was sent from Coshocton County Jail to the Lima State Hospital for an evaluation of his sanity. After a month of observation, Superintendent Ari Bushong wrote to law enforcement officials. He noted that while Reese was generally calm and polite, his words suggested otherwise. Quote, it is in his speech that much incoherence is noted for he uses many coined words and his stream of talk is disconnected and delusional. The delusions are mainly of a grandiose though morbid character. It is his belief he had a mission to perform because of his fancied employment by the FBI and in his fulfillment of that mission he did away with three men. He brings the names of prominent people into his scheme of things and would have us believe they visited him while he was in jail. So Reese claimed to have been visited by Bess Truman and other authority figures from the era. He also spoke of Reese having hallucinations of sight and hearing. His judgment was clear, quote, although Reese is severely deranged and it is our opinion that he is legally insane, highly dangerous, and of course, committable altogether. Reese is these things. Heeding the report on August 17, 1954, Judge Lloyd S. Leach declared Reese unfit for trial and sentenced him to return to the Lima State Hospital, quote, until restored for reason. This sentence was only for the death of Clyde Patton, the other two charges being held back in the eventuality that Reese should ever be released and restored to reason, making him fit for trial. A lot of locals, including families of missing men and investigators from other counties, believed Reese was responsible for way more murders. And although Sheriff Kempf wasn't interested in getting involved or pursuing those possibilities, he did allow others to come in and question Reese. Police Chief A.E. Jones from Newark in Licking County drove all the way up to Coshocton to confront Cletus with a photograph of a man named Peter Marest, a man missing since 1948. Reese took one glance at the photo and then shrank back into a corner, refusing to say anything else to Jones during the visit. Sheriff William McElroy of Licking County questioned Cletus about other missing persons from the area, but it was all it was useless. Reese didn't really make eye contact, hung his head low, and remained unresponsive. It's fair to suggest Reese would have had plenty of time to kill. Very little of the 195-acre property was farmed. It was in a general state of disrepair, littered with clutter hordes and broken-down vehicles. People figured Reese must have been up to something more than simply roaming the ridge with his dogs all the time. Of the abandoned vehicles, there was a fairly simple and logical explanation. Cletus Reese purchased rundown cars so he could sell the working parts separately for profit. Newspaper archives show he placed ads to buy and sell livestock, 
So it wasn't a stretch to believe he did the same with cars. To this day, it is unknown if some of the men who went missing in central Ohio in the late 40s and early 50s were runaways or murder victims. If Cletus Reese had more than three victims, which personally I think unlikely, the bodies were never found. Lastly, it only seems reasonable to believe he would have buried them in the same haphazard, shallow graves as Paul Tiche, Lester Mellick, and Clyde Patton, who wasn't really in a grave at all. Furthermore, thousands and thousands of people have searched and roamed the land. The property was eventually sold, farmed, and plowed for many, many seasons after that. Over the decades, nothing more has turned up. That didn't stop the tragic legend of Murder Ridge from growing larger and worse in the imaginations of people in the nearby region and beyond. Although there are claims of hauntings and ghoulish deeds happening on the land, there's no proof of such things, and most who have visited over the years found it to be peaceful and beautiful. It is now a private property with posted no trespassing signs unopened to the general public. Naturally, that hasn't entirely prevented curiosity seekers and adventurous teenagers from sneaking into Murder Ridge for a scare. Following the tragic murder of her 28-year-old husband, the widow Rosalie Patton relocated back home to Salem, West Virginia with her children. In a later interview with the Coshocton Tribune, Rosalie said she has forgiven Cletus and held no ill feelings against the Reese family. She claimed to understand Cletus was insane and had little to no control over his actions. She gave birth to Clyde's fifth child, Linda, at the end of August. Years later, in 1956, Rosalie Patton sued Ethel Reese for $100,000. The lawsuit alleged that Clyde died because of Ethel's insufficient supervision of Cletus. The case is believed to have been settled out of court. Cletus Reese never left the asylum for the criminally insane at Lima and never faced trial for the additional murders. Very little is known about his final years there. Cletus Reese died of a heart attack at the Lima State Hospital in May of 1966. Ethel outlived her brother by several decades, leaning on prayer and faith to lift her spirits in the dark times. She prayed daily for God to restore Cletus's sensibilities. Ethel passed away in 1991 at the age of 88. So something that was never discussed or explored was the motive of Cletus Reese. It was just accepted that he was a criminally deranged schizophrenic who lost his mind and murdered three men. But one can't help but wonder about his motive, especially given what we know about serial killers in the modern era. Was this violence a result of repressed attraction to men? No, if he was a schizophrenic, we don't know what he was thinking. Okay. I mean, and if he's, if he's being visited by, or if he thinks he's being visited by top, you know, authorities and, you know, first lady Truman. No, I think that's a reach at this point. There's no, there's nothing backing that up. Who gives a shit if he's never had a a relationship with a woman? I mean, if, if he was having imaginary conversations, you know, and speaking to nobody, right. Tough, tough to get a date. Sure. You know, like it's. I mean, you know, with all due respect there, but yeah, I mean, it's three's a crowd. 
you know. So I, I think if somebody is if somebody's dealing with schizophrenia, there are so many delusions and, and hallucinations, untreated schizophrenia, I should say. No, that's a reach. No. Is it possible Paul Tiche and Cletus Reese were more than friends at Cambridge State Hospital? Is that what pushed Paul Tiche to make his way to the Reese farm? And Cletus responded angrily, viciously killing him? Was the violent, repressed hostility triggered by a homosexual interaction with Paul Tiche? Of all the attacks, Paul Tiche got the worst of it. His skull was broken nearly in two. Now, it's hardly uncommon for serial killings to be triggered by furious sexual compulsion, and the rage of these murders is obvious. In confession, Cletus claimed to not know Paul Tiche, but it was widely noted by staff that the two shared a strong connection at the hospital. Another interesting tidbit that may have registered, the personal belongings of Clyde Patton were discovered in the bedroom of Cletus Reese. That strikes me as an intentional conscious decision to keep those souvenirs at his bedside into his personal space. No. There's clearly no evidence I, for this. I disagree. I couldn't. But couldn't it is disagree. it is worth pondering what the motive of Cletus Reese was. And there is some of these facts that can lend credence to that hypothesis. But, but I think if he's untreated schizophrenia, no, I... I think that's a really blanket discharge of schizophrenia and killing. Oh, he was, you are playing no, 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 into no, 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 the narrative no. of the fifties that he was just a schizophrenic who was demented and killed no, people. I'm not playing into the, into the kind the, of, the, if you're discarding any other possibility that it might have been, he's clearly driven by some other form of rage. These are very abnormal killings. If he's so delusional and that's the case, why won't he admit to ever having contact with these men? Why, why does he refused to acknowledge his relationship with Paul Tish when confronted with those realities. I don't think it's a stretch to believe that he was repressing sexual rage. But we don't even know not, that. No, we, we don't. don't. Even know that. They were, we don't. They were chums. We don't. They were schoolmates, like at the at the state they hospital. Yeah, they were like, like schoolmates, mean, but yeah, they knew each other there. I'm, There's no history preceding that. <sighs> I'm using that term loosely. Oh, okay. They're I'm like, using you know, terms like, precisely. Hey, but, Wow, we were gonna fucking fight tonight. <laughs> no, they're like, they're like, hey, buddy. I don't you require know. you to agree with me on I'm, this theory, and I'm not. I'm, okay, I'm sharing. Yeah. I'm sharing my my. I'm not my gonna thought batter because, you into because, agreement here. But wow, that's guys, just a theory. Like, as and to I motive, and I'm saying I disagree with your theory. You because think his motive was he was just fucking crazy? He was a crazy schizophrenic. That was his motive. Oh, okay. Well, what was the, it then? What, dude, I would wondering. never say that. Oh, well, I'm just wondering what you think the motive might have been. No, what I'm saying is he doesn't need a motive. If he, if it's untreated schizophrenia, we don't know what his delusions or hallucinations were. We don't, we, we don't know. And if he's not talking about it, that serial killers have motive. He's got three kills spread out across the time. There's a reason but you're, why. But you're completely, that's, that's but you're completely shutting. You're completely shutting out mental health here. Oh you're, no, that, that's a contributing factor. But just but, because he's killed three people doesn't mean he's you know on some rampage. He is. Oh, these if, were angry killings. I don't know. You know, angry killings. They don't want to hear us argue, but I think that's a reach personally because it's it's untreated mental illness. And we do not know what he was thinking. So if, if no, of course you know, just, just like the, the, in, in the, the scenario with, you know, that I experienced with the glasses, the pizza delivery guy is just dropping off a pizza. 
right? If he's having a, a, a disagreement with his friend, you know, who knows where that's coming from? As a killer, the mind of Cletus Reese was never explored under the modern understanding of what serial killers are and what drives them. He was simply discarded as a schizophrenic mental patient who killed three people. What I know about serial killers and how I've come to understand what drives them, sexual rage is a key deciding factor, although not exclusive to all of the reason why people kill. For me, it seems like there's a high likelihood that played into it. Of course, we'll never know. One other random note, while researching this case, I encountered, <laughs> I encountered the obituary of a guy whose notable life moments included being one of the grave diggers who buried Cletus Reese. <laughs> I was in this guy's obituary. It came up in my notes. Thought it was totally random. Sources for this episode, thepeopleofhistory.com, thenoxpages.com, a three-part story by Mark Sebastian Jordan, kids.kittle.com slash Hudson Motor Car Company, the Today.com, and a New York Daily News story by David J. Krajicek. Midwest Murder is co-hosted by Don Palumbo and Joan Alento, produced by the Good Talk Network. We're coming at you with this recording from Hay Camp Brewing in Rapid City, South Dakota. Thank you very much for being here with us tonight. Thanks. Thanks for listening to our arguing.